From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, we welcome back Edward Alden from the Council on Foreign Relations to discuss the latest series of tariffs implemented by President Donald Trump. Are we headed for a global trade war? That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the public morality. In the same week, President Donald Trump potentially reduced the prospects of nuclear war with North Korea. But he heightened the prospects of a global war that would pit the United States against, well, everybody, allies and adversaries alike. This is becoming a growing problem as it appears the president is committed to a linear path designed to bring down trade deficits but is also unaware or unconcerned with the unintended consequences, begging the question, are we headed for a global trade war? To unpack the president's trade policy, we're happy to bring back Edward Alden. Alden is a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Edward Alden, welcome back to the public morality. Yeah, it's great to be with you, Byron. Thanks for having me back. Okay. Uh, when you were on uh, several months ago, it was in the aftermath of President Trump imposing steel tariffs that would have potentially, uh, say, uh, impacted our allies before we even got to uh, impacting China. Could you give us a synopsis of what's transpired uh, with trade policy since we last talked with, and with steel tariffs? Yes. So when when we talked last, we were at the early stages on the steel and aluminum tariffs. So the Trump administration had threatened to put 25% tariffs on imported steel and 10% tariffs on imported aluminum, but initially exempted most of the countries that supply those products to the United States, Canada, the European Union, uh, Korea, Mexico. So the impact was initially fairly limited. Since then, uh, it has been rolled out uh, Fully. So the, the tariffs went into effect on June 1st for Canada, for Mexico, for the European Union. Korea agreed to voluntarily, I've got that in air quotes, uh, limited steel exports to the United States, so it was exempted from the tariff. So we've now seen these imposed. We've seen steel and aluminum prices rise very sharply here in the United States, and we've seen a tremendous war of words between President Trump and and close U.S. allies, including Canada and Germany and France and others. Uh, the allies are furious at this action. Um, it was taken on national security grounds to claim that somehow these imports are threatening U.S. national security. So it's caused a major rift in the, in the Western alliance, uh, which shows no sign of healing. Yeah, one of the aspects we talked about uh, was the tit-for-tat aspect that invariably accompanies uh, imposed tariffs. Are we there yet? How close are we to uh, actually engaging in that sort of tit-for-tat uh, practice? Uh, we're about uh, 11 days away from it at, at this point. So, 
so, you know, over the past quarter century or so, these things have been constrained by the rules of the World Trade Organization. You were supposed to carry out these disputes through that formal process. All of this is now happening outside the rules. Countries are making their own decisions on what to do. And, and with respect to steel and aluminum, Canada and Mexico and the European Union have all said that they will retaliate against an equal value of U.S. exports, uh, focused particularly on U.S. farm products. Those tariffs are going to go in place on July 1. Um, with respect to the separate dispute with China that we haven't talked about yet, um, on July 6, we're going to see both the U.S. tariffs and an immediate Chinese retaliation. So, so I think we'll, we will be fully into what is properly called a trade war in less than two weeks here. Mm. Do, do optics uh, play a role? And what I mean by that, that, that within 48 hours, uh, you, you saw the president uh, reasonably uh, complimentary to, to North Korea's Kim Jong-un uh, uh, in, in relation to uh, their, their summit in Singapore. But prior to that, uh, was very critical of our longest ally, which is Canada, and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. So do, do those optics play a role in this? Well, they, I mean, you know, just speaking as an American, I find those optics very troubling. I mean, uh, the North Korean regime is a murderous regime. It's imprisoned tens of thousands of its own people and engages in practices that, that, that before this, the United States had denounced quite forcefully as human rights violations. So, so that that troubles me. I mean, getting back to the the the, the trade piece, I, I I find it very odd where the president is picking his battles. I mean, one of the president's concerns, and there's there's some justification for it, is with the very high U.S. trade deficit. But if you look in the case of Canada, our, our trade with Canada is is more or less perfectly balanced. In fact, we sell them more manufactured goods than we buy from Canada. So to see the president picking a fight with the Canadians on this is very odd. I mean, what, what upset him is that, that the prime minister announced right after the G7 meeting, which he had said previously, that when the U.S. moves forward on – or sorry, no, let me correct that. With the U.S. having moved forward on the steel and aluminum tariffs, Canada had no choice but to retaliate in kind. I, mean, I think what Trump was hoping was that other countries would be intimidated and that the U.S. would slap tariffs on them, but they would not respond in kind because they were worried about angering the United States. That's not the case. Countries are all responding in kind. They have their own domestic politics to, to deal with. Trudeau's popularity has been soaring in Canada as a result of the fact that he stood up to President Trump. So, so this is just going to cause all the countries involved to, to dig in and take harder line positions than they would have otherwise. There, there, there's very little room here for negotiation at the moment. And, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but prior to that, Trudeau had been sort of slipping in the polls in Canada. Is, am I, is that correct? He, yeah, he's, I mean, he's had some challenges at home. He's had a couple of, of botched international trips. There are tensions with the western province of British Columbia over his determination to build a second pipeline to carry oil sands oil to, to Asia. There are sort of been small, uh, you know, government ethics uh, problems up there. So he had been slipping, and, and, and this, this has actually been a kind of political shot in the arm for him. You see the country rallying around him for standing up strongly to the Americans. So in, in, our, in our existing global economy, 
uh, as you see it, is it possible to em- embrace what could, I guess, otherwise no, not, could only be determined as uh, protectionist policies and it not result in a trade war? Well, we're... Um you know we're about to we're about to find out. Um, I mean, I, I I think that that this you know the the initial the initial actions here are reasonably small. I mean, you know they sound like big numbers, fifty billion here and there, but you know we're an eighteen trillion dollar economy, so I think initially the disruptions will be fairly modest. But there's no particular reason to believe it stops here. I mean, President Trump just yesterday threatened tariffs on $200 billion in Chinese imports. It'd be a 10% tariff, which is not a huge tariff, but still disruptive. There's another investigation underway which could lead to tariffs on foreign auto imports. So you start getting into into those numbers, and the impacts will be pretty significant. People are going to feel it in their, in their pocketbooks. Well, we're talking with uh, Edward Alden and the Council uh, on Foreign Relations. And Edward... He, he, it, how how would the the automobile tariff work since Ford and GM they have plants in Germany Germans have plants here in the United States so how does that work Well I mean if, you know if you have plants inside the United States you don't get affected so you know Toyota builds Corollas here in the United States those are not going to be affected by the the tariff so what would be affected is imported vehicles, which includes, you know, sort of Japanese luxury automobiles, most of the Korean automobiles sold, most of the German automobiles sold, though there are, you know, significant BMW and Volkswagen and Mercedes plants in the American South, which would not be directly affected. So, I mean, what that would do is it would favor American production over over imports, which is exactly what the administration wants to do. Um you know, some auto companies would, would be hurt by that. Others would, would be helped. Interestingly, Ford and GM have stayed fairly quiet for the moment about, about the threats possible. It would actually uh, be a net plus for them because it would reduce foreign competition. I mean, you know, these kind of protectionist actions always have some appeal because they create some short-term gains for some sectors of the economy. Uh, President Trump's trade advisor, Peter Navarro, had a piece in USA Today a couple of weeks ago extolling the opening of a new aluminum rolling mill in, in Kentucky in, a, in an area of the state which has suffered from pretty high unemployment, saying these are 600 great new jobs at the aluminum mill, which is true, but you're going to see a lot more jobs lost in the variety of companies that use aluminum and are seeing their costs go up. So. So, you know, it's seductive to do these kinds of things because there's sometimes there's some short-term payoff, but the longer-term damage to the economy far outweighs the gain. Well, uh, CBS poll that just came out uh, two days ago, or yesterday, I'm sorry, 71% of Republicans uh, support President Trump's trade policies. Yep. What happened to the Free Trade Party? Um, it flipped. <laughs> So it's now <laughs> President Trump's party, and it's a, it's a protectionist party. And actually, if you look at the history of the Republican Party, this is more where the Republican Party has been mm-hmm. throughout much of U.S. history. Um, but, you know, Trump has, Trump has changed the party's position on this, and pretty clearly the Republican Party is now President Trump's party. You've got 
you know, folks like the Speaker, Paul Ryan, and the Ways and Means Chairman Kevin Brady, and the Finance Chairman Orrin Hatch, who are kvetching and complaining, but they're not going to do anything about it. And as you say, for the moment, this stuff is pretty popular, you know, more with Republicans than Democrats, but not just with Republicans. I mean, the president's overall job approval rating at 45 percent now. Um, I think the tough on trade plays well, but but your listeners should remember we're in kind of a sweet spot here right now. So that sweet spot is economy is humming on all cylinders. You know, the tax cut has helped to juice the economy. Unemployment is at a very low level and the effects of these trade actions haven't really sunk in yet. I mean we only really saw the the, the hefty tariffs on steel and aluminum go in place about three weeks ago. That that doesn't show up in the in the economy yet in any significant way. So it's gonna take time for the negative impact of, of some of these trade actions to be felt by most Americans. I think, you know, if you look at this politically, Trump is calculating that that none of this is really going to bite before the midterms, and he's going to be in a pretty sweet spot, standing up for America on trade and, and, and presiding over an economy that's, that's pretty healthy. So you know, I predict the longer-term impacts are going to be far more negative. But in the short run, as I say, you know, may actually benefit him. And, and what exactly constitutes a trade war? I mean, uh, we, we talk about it, the potential, but what actually constitutes a trade war? The proper definition of a trade war is a series of, of tit-for-tat import-restricting retaliations, generally using tariffs, but there are other ways to do it as well, conducted outside the rules of the trading system. So be that the WTO or trade agreements like, like NAFTA. And we, we haven't seen a trade war in a long time. I mean, you can look at President Nixon's 10% across-the-board tariff in 1971, um, which lasted for about four months. Might call that a trade war, though Though he actually did it uh, in accordance with the rules of the time under what was then called the GATT system. There was a kind of brief skirmish between the United States and Europe in the early 1960s known as the Chicken War, in which the Europeans were trying to boost their chicken production and began blocking American poultry exports. The U.S. responded with a 25% tariff on exports, primarily of the you know the old Volkswagen bus that that everybody used to drive around in the 60s. Yeah, Woodstock. Um, I, I equate that to Woodstock. <laughs> I equate that to Woodstock. Me too. That was before my time, but but I, I remember the photos. Um, that that ended up actually being permanent. You know, the reason that that we today have a 25% tariff on imported light trucks, you know, the equivalent of the Ford F-150 pickup, is because of that chicken war in the early 1960s. That tariff just stayed in place. But that was that was pretty small. I mean, the last real trade war we saw was in the 1930s, and, and that didn't end well, as we all know. Whether it is our allies or China uh, with, with these, some of these policies, you sort of touched on it earlier, but I want to come back to it. Where, in your view, is the president right ab- ab- about these trade policies? Now, I'm not talking about the action, but, but, but what is he looking at that, 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 where he's right? I think there are a lot of things he's right about. I think he's right that successive U.S. governments did far too little to deal with the harmful effects of import competition, particularly the huge surge in Chinese imports that we saw in the 2000s. The United States lost 6 million manufacturing jobs in the 2000s. That was about a third of the total. 
those were good jobs. A lot of those were union jobs, paying $25, $30 an hour with benefits. When those disappeared, the options for the individuals who lost those jobs were very limited. Government did little or nothing to help them. We should have stood up to some of China's practices far sooner and done a lot more here at home to help those who were displaced by, uh, by trade competition. The, the very large U.S. trade deficit I don't think is, is sustainable. The global economy is very imbalanced. The U.S. Uh, consumes too much, exports too little. Again, that's not all the fault of our trading partners. There are a lot of things we need to do here at home to deal with that, but that's a real problem, and, and I think Trump rightly identified that. So I actually, I mean, I wrote about a lot of this in my book, but I actually agree with quite a few of the elements of his critique of U.S. trade policy. I just strongly disagree with the tactics he's pursuing to try to address these problems. I think they are, are going to be destructive to the global economy. I think they're going to weaken our alliances. And I ultimately think they're going to be very harmful to the United States. Mm -hmm. Edward, I just want you to know you violated one of the primary rules of the public morality just then. You said my book without <laughs> without telling us a title or pitching it. You know, you, you feel free to just you know be be like the Kardashians when it comes to your book. Just put it out there. So yeah, I, that. You know, I, I, I spent a few years in Canada, and you acquire that sort of Canadian modesty. Uh, um, the book is called "Failure to Adjust: How Americans Got Left Behind in the Global Economy." And it came out right before the 2016 election, and then there was an updated paperback that came out uh, about a year later, uh, last September. And I didn't really know it when I was writing the book, but it goes into you know this whole set of issues about you know ways in which Americans have been harmed by uh, our inability to, to help people adjust to what was coming with global competition from China and elsewhere. I think in a lot of ways the book actually predicted why. Trump won the election and why he won it where he won it, you know, in Michigan and Ohio and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, you know, North Carolina, states that were hit pretty hard by trade competition. And, and you know, that those ended up being the states that put him in the Oval Office. Now, earlier we, um, we talked about where, where, where the president was right, some of the things you saw that you agreed with. Are there uh, other... Uh, Allies uh, say China in specific that are that are feel the same way about China as as uh, this president. Do our allies share those feelings? Germany shares them. France shares them. The UK shares them. Canada shares them. Japan shares them. But we've alienated every one of those allies by launching trade conflicts with them before we ever went after China. So good luck in getting their help on this one. Well, you, that actually, so I guess there's really, at, at this point, no point in asking you, uh, can there be sort of a united trans-Atlantic effort to uh, ex uh, exert more pressure on Beijing? I guess that, that's a non-starter, right? <laughs> I mean, at the moment, unless the, unless the president reverses course and, and, and you know, essentially apologizes to our allies for what he's been doing and, uh, and, adopts a very different stance and anybody who's watched this president you know thinks that you know the the, the moon is going to turn to green cheese before that happens. well i was just I, not his style so. i was just thinking not to be i don't want to be partisan here but apology president trump they, they, those those just felt incongruent when you said them uh, <laughs> they are in, they clearly are incongruent i mean he has 
he has a style on this stuff, right? And he's been pretty clear about it, and his supporters have been pretty clear about it, which is, which is when he gets hit, he hits back harder. I mean, even if he landed the first blow, if you look at what happened with Canada, you know, uh, you know, we hit them first. They said they were going to hit back, and the president goes crazy and says, what do you mean you can't hit us back? We're going to escalate. Same with China. So you have started with $50 billion. China said, okay, we're going to respond in kind with 50. And the president goes, well, to heck with you. I'm going to hit $200 billion then. Um, I mean, the administration has a theory. It's a very dangerous theory, but their theory, getting back to the trade deficits, because the U.S. buys so much more from the world than it sells, that we have a lot more ammunition in a trade war. We can hurt far more of their exports than they can hurt of our exports. And, you know, at some arithmetical level, that's true. But the problem is we're going to hurt ourselves enormously in the, in the process. We, we may end up the least worst off but the world is going to be significantly poorer as a result of it. Well, well Edward, you know, in, in your last answer, uh, you said that we buy more stuff. And at the end of the day, I, I, don't want to, I don't want to portray the American consumer as cynical, but at the same time, I would, I would put forth to you that it's more important, I'll just use it myself, it's more important for me to go to Walmart and get a great price on a 60-inch, you know, flat-screen television than, you know, the, the trade imbalance. I, I, isn't, that, isn't that sort of uh, human nature? Isn't that a reality to that? I, I mean, I think that is human nature. And I think, interestingly, I think the president knows that, too. If you look at this, this first round of tariffs against China, it's not going to hit the televisions in the Walmart. It's not going to hit your smartphones from China. Um, it's, it's going to hit industrial products of one sort or another. But if it goes to the next round, that $200 million, then the you know, price of your TV set is going to go up. And clearly, if we start uh, putting tariffs on imported cars, the price of your car is going to go up, whether it's made in the United States or not, right? Because American auto producers are going to use that opportunity to raise their prices. And, and then, then I think people are going to get upset. But we've got months to go before, uh, before that happens. Uh- uh, what specific from uh, concerns you? Uh, what what reflects the greatest need for for for, the, for U.S. trade policy to be concerned? Because I'm sensing it's not steel and aluminum, and it's not dairy products. So, wh- what's out there? What's looming where we really need to have some attention focused? Um, I'm 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 concerned about war and peace. To be quite honest, I mean, you know. This whole system of trade rules was was constructed under U.S. leadership after the Second World War because of a belief that the trade conflicts of the 1930s had been a major trigger for the Second World War. I mean, a lot of history teaches you that it's hard to contain economic conflicts, that economic conflicts spill into larger conflicts. And so the sort of gleeful abandon with which the Trump administration is blowing up this carefully constructed system of global trading rules, that's what really worries me. I mean, yes, there are going to be pocketbook impacts. You know, some people are going to get hurt, though some people will benefit. But what I, I really worry about is the, the deterioration in relations among nations that I, I think is, is potentially going to set us on a road to conflict. You know, we've lived through a very peaceful era in global history, you know, 70, 80 years here without major global wars. You know, that's not preordained. 
it's possible to screw that up. And, and I just think a lot of this is being done in a very cavalier and dangerous fashion uh, by people who don't have a sense of that history and don't recognize what the dangers are. You know, I, I hear um, this was uh, something I, hear, I heard from a lot of my friends who are Democrats would say they're not opposed to free trade. They want fair trade. And, and I always think about what my father used to tell us was fair was a place where you bought cotton candy and, and had corn dogs. So, so what is fair trade? And is that a possibility in your view? In the in the the pure term fair trade, no. But I think trade can be fairer in various ways, and I, and I think that's been part of the problem with China. That I think China has done things that I think it would be widely agreed are not terribly fair, particularly heavy subsidies to a whole range of industries: steel, autos, auto parts, solar panels, shipbuilding, uh, you know, aluminum, uh, glass, you name it. That has conferred an unfair competitive advantage on a lot of Chinese companies, and I think there are investment restrictions in China, which I think are rightly called unfair. That's what we have the system of rules for, to negotiate this stuff out and to use it to put pressures on, pressure on countries that, that aren't abiding by the rules. There's a lot of blame to go around here. I mean, successive administrations did not use the rules as they existed. Just to use a, a, an example, China throughout the 2000s was intervening to hold the value of their currency at artificially low levels. That helps you to export, right? If your currency is cheaper, your stuff is cheaper, and you can export more. Um, Bush administration knew this was a problem. The Congress had passed laws to deal with it. Laws were never triggered. We talked with the Chinese. You know, they made a little bit of progress. But there was never any real pressure over this issue. And there are a whole bunch of examples like that. And the, and the problem is that the American people don't see their government fighting for fair conditions in trade, especially when it's having real consequences for people losing their jobs here in the country, there's going to be a backlash to that. And we are living with the backlash to that right now. Now, I get a sense, and you're obviously you know, much closer to it, uh, that the White House, in some respects, at least they had, maybe they don't anymore, but it was almost like two policies, two trade policies. There's, there's the policy that comes out of the administration in the macro context, and then there's sort of a more ad hoc policy emanating specifically from the president. I wonder how, how you saw that. Well, I would say there were two trade policies. You had a, a, a reasonable balance of power between the you know sort of trade nationalists we could even call them protectionists you know folks like Peter Navarro and Robert Lighthizer the U.S. Trade Representative and Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross kind of a reasonable balance between those and and what we could call for want of a better term the free traders you know the Treasury Secretary Mnuchin Gary Cohn who was the economic advisor H.R. McMaster who was his national security advisor that's gone now so you know Gary Cohn is gone he's been replaced by Larry Kudlow who's a yes man for the president, Peter Navarro's been elevated in the White House, and the president himself, his instincts are much closer to the protectionists in his administration. So there is a single trade policy now in the administration, and it's focused on restricting imports and possibly using that as leverage to negotiate better deals. But even that I'm becoming less certain of. Because the administration does not have a negotiating strategy. There are no talks going on with China. 
the NAFTA talks with Canada and Mexico have broken down. There's no talks going on with the European Union. The only thing the administration is actually doing is imposing tariffs and preparing to impose more tariffs. So I, I think for the moment there is a single trade policy in the administration, and it's a policy of restricting imports to the United States through the use of tariffs. And that's where we are at the moment. You, you mentioned Mr. Cutlow, and, and, he's, and I was just thinking, I could have sworn all those years I've been watching him on television that he was a free trader. So I, what did he go through a metamorphosis? What happened? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, you look at Kevin Hassett, who's the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, who's as pure a free trader as you'll get out there. You know, these guys have found ways to make their peace with being in the Donald Trump administration. And so they, they come up with explanations as to why Trump's policies are consistent with, uh, with freer trade. And, and you can imagine, you know, if the result of these were, you know, a series of agreements in which China and other countries opened their markets further, bought more U.S. products, that would be a pro-free trade sort of outcome. And that, that happened on several occasions with Japan in the 1980s. So there's a plausible story to tell there, but to get back to what I said about the lack of negotiations, if I look at what the administration is actually doing, I see no serious negotiations that are going to result in those kind of market openings. The only thing I see happening is tariffs going in place to restrict imports into the United States. And I think that's what the Trump trade policy is at the moment. I mean, he's, he said that on numerous occasions, both inside his cabinet meetings and publicly says, I want tariffs. Well, he's, he's getting his tariffs. Well, to, the, to, to that end, then, uh, when you look at the president's trade policies, has he even left himself enough room for a plan B? Suppose China doesn't acquiesce or our allies don't acquiesce. So what do we do then? We just more tariffs? I mean, is there a plan B? Yeah. I, I mean, I think, I think, you know, the president will double down and then he'll triple down and then he'll quadruple down. I think the only thing that stops it is major market correction. I mean, a real crash in the market that signals declining confidence in, in the administration's policy. Huge reaction from affected constituencies, most importantly, I think, in the Farm Belt, which is a, a big part of the, of the Trump coalition. If farmers really see themselves being harmed by this, um, there could be a reaction there. And I, and I suppose the third possibility is some, you know, is a, is a big loss for the Republican Party in the midterms that require, you know, that, that, that leads the party to sort of question its fealty to Trump, though even there, I don't know if it gets you there. I don't, I don't think you get two-thirds majorities in the House and Senate to, to change direction on this. So, so I think this is going to get much, much worse before the president is in a position where, where he even considers changing course. Edward Alden, Council on Foreign Relations, thank you, sir, for enlightening us on trade policy and being on the public rally today. It's great to be with you again, Brian. Excuse me, Byron. Great to be with you. I have been called. I, I've been called a lot worse, so that's not a problem. <laughs> no, I'm just. I'm getting tired. I've been. I've been doing lots of interviews on this because obviously uh, it's shaking markets and other things. So sometimes I trip over my tongue when I get tired. But thank you for a bunch of excellent questions. Thank you, sir. Have a great day. On the day we recorded the public rally this week. It was also the birthday of New York Yankees Hall of Famer Lou Gehrig. One of baseball's most tragic stories, arguably the greatest first baseman in the history of the game, was cut down in the prime of life by what is known today as Lou Gehrig's disease. So we remember Gehrig by playing his entire farewell address on July 4, 1968. 
1939 in Yankee Stadium, accompanied by a number of current Major League Baseball players. For the past two weeks. For the past two weeks. For the past two weeks. You have been reading about the bad break I got. Yet today, I consider myself. I consider myself. I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. I've been in ballparks for 17 years. And I've never received anything but kindness and encouragement from you fans. When you look around, wouldn't you consider it privilege to associate yourself with such a fine-looking man as a standing in uniform in this ballpark today? Look at this grand man. Which of you wouldn't consider it the highlight of his career just to associate with them for even one day? Sure, I'm lucky. Who wouldn't consider it an honor to have known Jacob Rupert? Also, the builder of baseball's greatest empire, Ed Barrow. To have spent six years with that wonderful little fellow, Miller Huggins. Then to have spent the next nine years with that outstanding leader. That smart student of psychology. The best manager in baseball today. The best manager in baseball today. Joe McCarthy. Sure, I'm lucky. When the New York Giants, a team you would give your right arm to beat, and vice versa, sends you a gift, that's something. When everybody down to the groundskeepers and those boys in the white coats remember you with trophies. Remember you with trophies? That's something. When you have a wonderful mother-in-law who takes sides with you and squabbles with her own daughter, that's something. When you have a father and a mother who work all their lives so you can have an education, so you can have an education and build your body, it's a blessing. When you have a wife who has been a tower of strength. When you have a wife who has been a tower of strength and shown more courage than you dreamed existed. That's the finest I know. So I close in saying that I might have been given a bad break, but I've got an awful lot to live for. That I might have been given a bad break, but I've got an awful lot to live for. Thank you. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast, which can be found on iTunes. My weekly column can be found in the Sunday edition of the Winston-Salem Journal, as well as Politics NC. That's Politics North Carolina. The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Rally, I'm Byron Williams. <laughs>